Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. Well, hello, everybody. And this time we have with us Daniel North, who I met for the first time at a conference in Budapest. I don't know if you remember the year it was. I was like 2015, maybe something like that. It was a while ago, yes. It was a while ago, and it's what kicked off. It's when I talked to JetBrains, and they said, hey, we want you to write Atomic Kotlin, and that whole thing got started. But anyway, I remember you were sitting at another table at breakfast at the hotel, and somehow we got talking and then i ended up this was a uh, this was when i used to think that having recovery days when you're traveling internationally was a good idea i'm not so sure now but anyway so it was my recovery day and i ended up hanging out with you the whole day and going to your presentation and by the time you were like halfway through the presentation i was all starry-eyed because it was like oh my gosh this guy look at how he connects with his audience he's just like he's just like really on top of everything and i don't know and all of your presentations which i recently watched uh most of the ones i could get my hands on um have the same kind of command of the of the whole presentation and you don't say you don't have the throwaway words the ums and all that so anyway i was just like super impressed and that was a really fascinating conference what was the presentation on i don't even remember oh good heavens so well so uh, craft and i go back a long way so what what let me just give you i'll give you a quick quick heads up on craft <clears throat> which is coming up fairly soon actually is it's this one chap right this one this one hungarian guy um, uh, his name's Gergay. Everyone calls him Feo. And what he did, it was a genius piece of social engineering. He created a Google spreadsheet of everyone he would want to see at a conference. And then, you know, with columns of like, you know, yes, no, question mark, maybe uh, notes, that kind of stuff. And then he emailed this spreadsheet to all of the people. <laughs> and so now suddenly everyone was looking at a list of all the people they'd want to see at a conference and they were all seeing that you know so and so has said yes and so and so says maybe and then well if they're going to go I, I want to go and see them I'll sign up and so what happened was from a standing start the first year that the craft uh, ran which I think was early to early 2010s um, his speaker lineup was like keynotes of every other conference <laughs> And it was just insane, and it and it went up from there, and so, and it started in like a a conference venue in in Hungary, in Budapest, and then it moved because it outgrew that, and then it went to there's a palace, okay, on the river in Budapest, and it went to the palace, and then and then it went beyond that. Now it was too big for that, so now it's in the there's a railway museum on the edge of town, <laughs> and he's taken over the railway museum. And so my history with it, I was I, I was lucky enough to be one of the first folks on on that list, or, or at least on that at that first conference. And I've been at I think every single craft except one. Mm. So so I, I mean I could probably go and find you the topic, but the my experience just hearing Bruce say that was the the adage of never meet your heroes is sometimes it's really nice to meet your heroes because <laughs> I had no idea until this moment that that's what you thought about my talk. 
Oh, oh yeah, I was just blown away. Uh, it and it wasn't. I don't remember the topic. It was just your presentation abilities, and it, more than that, it was how you thought about things, how you looked at. Oh, I see. Here's a problem, but let's take a step up, maybe multiple levels, and see what's causing that problem in the first place. The meta of what's causing that problem, and. Uh, I have a list of ideas that I have about meta problems that I want to bounce off you at some point in this discussion. So, but well, so me... funny enough, I, I actually had a, I had a, 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 a as, as I was saying before we started, press the record button. Um, I had a bit of a, not a meta thing, but anyway, there, there, there's something about feedback loops that I want to, I'd like us to chat about. I've no idea where it'll fit in, but let's just, let's just put That's that on, on my a, list on post too, it somewhere. The whole feedback system. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. let's, okay. let's start with something simple, which is like the other day I put out a pod, uh, um, a tweet that said, I'm always focusing on the bear, but it's usually the puppies that bring me down. And I'm talking about, you know, friction and little hurdles and everything. And I'm curious, what little hurdles block you? What, oh, wow. Um, oh, distraction. Distraction mm -hmm. is the little hurdles that block me. So, uh, you know, an obsession with Twitter <laughs> and saying, okay, well, I'm now going to shut my tweet deck window and I'm not going to carry on with work. And 45 seconds later, it's open. And I'm sure it wasn't me that opened it, but there it is. <laughs> Right. Uh -huh. yeah, it's just and like now, the habit of like i i mean to do something on my phone but for some reason every single time i look at my phone i go to twitter and get lost in twitter for many minutes and then i've completely forgot the actual thing that i was trying to accomplish on my phone but yeah i think i think the i think the the smartphone is the 21st century equivalent of what did i come in this room for yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. right it resets your brain okay um, all right, and, and well, then you put it down, and then you go, and you go. Oh, I remember now. I have to make that payment, <laughs> and then just recursively, yeah. like go back to Twitter, forget what I was meaning to do. And, but yeah, someone on the internet is wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. Before we get into the other things, let us go into. Um, so I, I actually have this on my list: feedback as the core of a successful structure. And like, because I, I made the assertion the other day that um, feedback is is kind of what determines whether a whether a system I don't know, is ultimately successful or or it fails. Is that You're saying we can't get it right the first time? Well, not only that, but you need to have that you know feedback coming in and and in fact um one of the problems or probably maybe the main problem with uh, so-called dominator hierarchy i don't know if you've heard the term um, um but is it self-explanatory what a dominator hierarchy is okay so one of the problems with the dominate main problem with the dominator hierarchy is is at every level somebody wants to dominate the level below it and so the idea of feedback is anathema to that mm-hmm and so, and that's why I think ultimately those things um, can only go so far and perhaps ultimately collapse. So I think, I mean, for me, there, there are two, I mean, when, when you talk about this, there are two clear separate but related worlds that pop into my head. One is the social feedback model, 
and the other is a technical feedback model. The social feedback model, uh, by far the most effective and like, you know, uh, demonstrably, uh, tangibly, visibly uh, effective counter to this or model model that I've seen that works with this is the David Marquette or David Marquet. I'm not sure how to pronounce his surname. I've only ever seen it written down. Um, leader, leader model. So when he talks about turn the ship around. Um, so have you come across uh, turn the ship around? I've read the book. Question. You read it. Have, Fantastic. I haven't. So, so yeah, it'd be good. Okay. To so so very on. briefly, this guy, he's an ex uh, US um, Navy nuclear sub commander. So, you know, props to the guy, right? Yeah. It turns out that all nuclear subs are a little bit different from each other. Each one is a one-off. They're each <laughs> you have a navy full of snowflakes, and <clears throat> and so the idea is that if you're going to captain a, a, a nuclear sub, you spend six months like learning the sub, uh, how it works, all of the m- mechanisms and whatever, and then you then take it out for a six-month tour. And given that you're a submarine, uh, a successful six-month tour means you didn't surface. Right. <laughs> if you come up, it's usually bad news. <laughs> You're usually coming up in order to. So, so you've now got uh, a bunch of people who are going to spend the next six months of their lives in close quarters. You know, in um, and in this very, very high risk, high impact, high pressure world. So that's that, that's the context. He um, he's about to take his sub out, and then he gets a tap on the shoulder. Uh, Captain Marker, um, you've got a reputation of being really, really good at difficult situations. I said, I oh, thank you very much, and like no good deed goes unpunished. We're giving you the worst sub in the fleet. Okay, <laughs> it has the highest attrition, lowest scores. You know everything about this sub sucks, and it's not the one you were going to go on. And you start on Monday. So because. <laughs> um, and pretty much the first thing he does, he gets on the sub and he introduces himself, and they're all there, they're, they're all, you know, they they launch, and he says, "Okay, full ahead, uh, two thirds." And uh, so his his second says, uh, calls down to the engine room, "Full ahead, two thirds." Silence. <laughs> oh, what's happening um, from the engine room, uh, sir? This ship doesn't have full ahead, two thirds. <laughs> He's like, sorry, <laughs> like, this this sub doesn't have full ahead two thirds, and he's like, okay. And so he says to the second, he said, did you know that? He said, yes, sir. So why didn't you tell me? Because you gave me a command, sir. He said, what if I'd given you a command that was going to kill us all? <laughs> he said, this clearly isn't going to work. We need to do a different thing. And so he introduced what he called um, intent based leadership. So he said, at every point in the hierarchy, you say, I intend to do this thing. Right, so so Bruce is you know Bruce is the commander. I'm I'm in charge of say uh, the galley. Right, I do cooking. So I say right, uh, Bruce. I intend to uh, make lasagna. And he says, right, that sounds great. You know, I say I intend to make lasagna and race it with uh, and lace it with rat poison. And he says, well, just a minute. Why, why would you do that? I'm going to challenge that. That's a reasonable challenge. You probably should should challenge that. And so if everyone's talking about what they intend to do, then you only ever need to manage by exception. Right, I'm not asking permission. I'm telling you that I know this well enough that I've probably got this. And if you hear something that sounds odd, you get to challenge it. And that model is brilliant because it works all the way down. At any level, your peers, your subordinates, people who report to you, and your, your superiors can challenge what they're hearing. <laughs> and, you, and exactly what you're saying, Bruce, it creates this feedback. You, you, you have continual, but ironically, what you have, the majority of signal is going upwards. 
it's people saying what they intend to do. And, it's, and the only the only stuff that comes down from above is the occasional challenge or question. Well, and that was originally what the hierarchy was supposed to do was right. move information upward so people know what's going on and they can make big picture decisions. Yeah. And it's not about importance. It's just about depth of or, or about breadth of, of view. Like, you know, if you're, are you managing the entire force in wherever it is, or are you managing half a dozen people on the ground? Yeah. Um, one of the problems that I see, though, with a hierarchy is that it seems to invite or encourage the people who want to be in power yes. to go into power. And, and I usually find the people who want to be in power are not the people I want to work for. Are the absolute least well, and also not just who you don't want to work for, they're often the least suited to mm. it. Mm-hmm. The ones who want it the most, you know, because what you want is people who are genuine servant leaders, and what you get is a bunch of narcissist uh, sociopaths. <laughs> and it turns out that, that sociopathic narcissism is a fantastic set of um, personality traits to succeed in in corporate world. If it's if you, if you're just in it for you, right. And I think that's probably because the people who ended up designing it were those people. So it's kind of a, I mean, one of my questions, is it possible to take the dominator out of the hierarchy? And well, yes, if you have the right person, you know, steering the ship, being the commander of the ship, yes. Well, so so yes and no, because, yeah, sorry, go on. That's that's very much like the um, benevolent dictator. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, it depends on the benevolence of the dictator, and it's by definition not going to last beyond their their reign or their lifetime. Well, and this is the same. This is the same uh, socio cultural argument against philanthropy. Is <laughs> you know, should a a rich white male billionaire determine who gets good social care? Or should that be a, a necessary consequence of building the right social system in the first place? One of the, well, the NVC workshop that I've been taking for the last two years, um, one of the things that she brought up was um, whenever you make a decision, ask, is this good for some people or is it good for everybody? <laughs> and just, so just to clarify, NVC, nonviolent communication. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. Nonviolent yes. communication, yeah. yes. Yes, and that that's been kind of going through my head all this time. It's like it's a much harder thing to figure out, or at least with the tools that we have now. Anyway, uh, let me go and so, find. So there's like the feedback side, Daniel, on the yes. social side, but then you also mentioned the other side, which is like the the technical side or something, right? So, well, so and this is so. so <clears throat> this came up a few times actually back on the twitters again over the last few days. And it caused me to spin up what will be, I really hope will actually be a thing, but I, I, I fear that it will be just yet, yet another side project that doesn't go anywhere. So if I talk about it publicly on your podcast, now you're committed. by the time this airs, yeah. <laughs> oh, that, be a non-zero... is a, that is a for sure way of getting anything done. <laughs> oh, I, I can promise I'm, you. I'm being sarcastic. Well, no, I'm not, right? I, all of my output in the last, I don't know, some years, is invariably as a result of an inbound email. You know, how would you do this thing? Can you help me with this thing? And I end up writing a big comprehensive reply. And I think, actually, that might make a pretty good general useful information. And I put it out somewhere. Um, it might be a challenge. So all of the Cupid 
work that I've been doing in the last year or so was literally someone said, hey, we're having a meetup about Solid and what would you do instead? You know, you, you're clearly not a fan of Solid. What would you do instead? And I, I hadn't, no one had caused me to articulate that yet. And then pretty much on the back of that, I got invited to speak at a conference and they said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about this thing. And those two <laughs> those two events put me on the hook to do something actually tangible. Yep. So most of my output is usually um, a fear of other people's deadlines. I'm very happy for mine to go whooshing past, but I don't like to let people down. <laughs> Conferences <laughs> impose good deadlines on us. It's true. It focuses. And the, pro- you. the problem is, I'm actually not bad at writing a title and an abstract. I can, you know, I can come up with something reasonably compelling, and then that means, and now I've got to follow through with a talk, which is much harder. Yeah, and what often happens with me is I, I write the abstract completely forget like what it was that i actually wanted to like do and then a week before the talk i go back to my abstract and i'm like really i wrote that i don't even know what that means like now i have to somehow figure figure out again what what i was was four months ago james thinking yeah exactly (laughs) yeah that's some kind of inspiration there well okay that i might as well use that as the jumping off point we know for... but daniel is going to tell us about this thing he's committing to, oh, so this to thing, doing yeah now. oh yeah what's the what so, are you committing well so 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 this goes back to feedback so <clears throat> something i want to do when i'm building particularly when i'm building something exploratory which is most of the code i ever write mm-hmm. you know i don't i don't know the answers if i knew the answers if someone's already done it i'll just go use their thing and do you use so that, TDD there, when you're doing this well exploratory now here's the programming? Thing. i tend to i tend to you know, and, and I don't obsessively TD, you know, I don't write a test for every single piece of code I'm going to write. Mm-hmm. I think that's useful training wheels. Um, there's a wonderful Stack Overflow answer that's been like, you know, some of them they bake in, in Anthracite or whatever because it's it's going to become famous. And there was a, a lovely Stack Overflow question a few years ago called something like, how deep are your unit tests? And it was saying, like, how much TDD do you do? Do you test, uh, you know, getters and setters and all that kind of stuff? And uh, so Kent Beck pops up (laughs) and says, wonderfully controversially, I write as few tests as I can get away with because I don't get paid to write tests. And and a million voices cried out. (laughs) Kent has spoken and he doesn't write obsessive obsessive TDD. We don't understand this. And... I think it might have been Kent. Someone used the metaphor uh, many years ago, stuck in my head, of hiking. And if you're walking along reasonably flat ground, you can take quite big steps. And then you get to a steep bit or a very um, rubbly bit, you know, lots of lots of gravel under your feet. And so you take smaller, more deliberate steps. And you get to a point place where you, uh, some, maybe somewhere where you're you're practically climbing. You're taking tiny little steps and there's loads of effort. And then, but then after you've been taking loads of effort, when it levels out again, you don't carry on taking tiny steps. You know, you start kind of, you get back into your stride. And you can think of that as the granularity of your tests or your code examples or whatever your language is, is, you know, write write the test that helps you think about the next thing. And if you can take a few reasonably big steps reasonably confidently, go nuts until you can't. And so, and this, funny enough, this was part of the conversation was, I was talking with, I think it was uh, Joe Rainsworth or someone uh, lovely um, about TDD. 
And, and practically simultaneously, he and someone else said, the problem I have with TDD is, especially in a new language, I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. You know, I pick up Go and it has this testing package and I don't know about Go testing and testing has these, you know, these, these things in there and it doesn't have a cert, which is weird. And the designers of Go said, well, no, we've got if. <laughs> we've got if it's perfectly fine right if if this thing doesn't match your expectation fail the test that that's what your assert does right yeah yeah pretty much okay well you don't need another word then uh, yeah okay that makes sense um rust has a unit testing thing baked into it which is very nice and uses annotations um python most people most people i know will will reach for pytest and pytest is made of magic and is beautiful and has the best error messages of any testing framework I've ever seen huh. and so on. And, and so we're saying like the, the problem is it's like landing in a new is when you land in a new country, it's not just that you don't speak the language. It's you don't know what their equivalent is for the thing you have at home. What's the idiomatic <laughs> way of doing yeah, it? Yeah. Right. Well, how do we even do this? So I registered how to TDD dot in. <laughs> And so then it's going to be just really simple static website, howtotdd.in slash Rust. Nice. Uh, howtotdd.in slash Python. And it will be, look, right, you, you've got a long road ahead of you. If you're just starting Python, you've got a long and very fun road ahead of you. I want to get you out the gate with doing TDD. And what I figured is that my, my acceptance criteria of each language isn't going to be this is the boilerplate you need. That's what I thought it was going to be. I thought I'll just start with, you know, in Rust, you're going to want like a um, main.rs and then you're going to want uh, your module and then you're going to want to put some test code and whatever. Is What I want to do is get you from zero to into your TDD cycle. Mm-hmm. So it won't be detailed like how to install Go or whatever. You can, I'll just link to that. Once you've got this stuff, what, what what are the steps that you need so you're now you've now got your first failing and then passing test mm. right okay you're off you're going to be you, you've got it from here yeah there's other frameworks yeah there's other tools but but this will get you out the gate yeah so you have this domain name and is that what is going to make you do the rest of the work uh, no telling you <laughs> I'll do the mean, Kotlin page for you. So okay. well, absolutely right. So how's yeah. TDD in Kotlin? It's 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 a, it's gorgeous. So so well, certainly what I did TDD in Kotlin is I just use JUnit. I use just the Jupyter, you know, yeah. the org.junit. Yeah. Um, but with the Kotlin backticks. And it's yep. it's it's so lovely. Yeah. It's just really lovely to read. And I I drop Hamcrest in there and it's just like being in Kansas, um, but just with better work, you know. <laughs> yeah. With nicer whatever um, affordances, so and and the the fun thing will be that it's all open source. Obviously, the website itself is just a Hugo static website. Yeah, um, easy. I put that on. It's on GitHub.com slash Tastapod slash How to TDD in, I think, or something like that. How to TDD. Nice. So we can. I'll and send you a pull request. And... Exactly yeah. right. Anyone can fork it. Anyone can send a PR. Give me your your favorite language. We'll have a little chat about whether we think this is actually. A, you know the, the 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 best advice to give someone new to your town, or whether mm. you know it, it assumes so something like Scala, which is this incredibly um, unopinionated language. Like you can write pretty much any possible programming paradigm in Scala. How do you get started with TDD? 
Yeah. Ask five Scala people, get seven answers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't actually know. It might be, you know, how to TDD dot in slash Scala slash using this thing. <laughs> right, <laughs> using exactly. thing. The variants. <laughs> you know, seven sub pages. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I, I'm gonna I'm certainly gonna be opinionated. I'm going to be a benevolent dictator on that site. And I'm not just going to accept PRs. I'm gonna say, well, James, you know. Is this how we would want someone coming to Kotlin to get out of the gate idiomatically yeah. in a way that they're going to feel happy? Yeah, and I think your target is really people that that show up in this very, very foreign land and have no idea any of the pieces. Mm-hmm. And so just helping them get oriented and get going. Because and, it's much better to get them familiar going. with TDD, right? So, right. so you know, they're, 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 they're really comfy with RSpec in Ruby. And they come to Python and they look for maybe a BDD style, given when, then style frame. And they're, they're, there's a bunch of them. And yeah. none of them are PyTest. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and PyTest is lovely and start there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and likewise, you know, going from Python to Ruby, say, which are you know, arguably not dissimilar um, languages to get started in at least, um, that I, 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 would, you know, I, I wouldn't start with unit test. In Ruby, I'd always start with RSpec because huh. everyone uses it. It's it's the it's the lingua franca. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's it's, it's how to it's how to um, it's your little welcome committee into TDD. There you go. <laughs> in a foreign land. Well, it fits well with the theme of our podcast, which is about the happy path and how do we how do we get people onto the happy path, but make that the like easy path too. Right. You know, because so many times the happy path, and I think this is very true for testing, is that the happy path is not the easy path. You know, it's like to to be able to set up your tests and get going testing something in some kind of foreign language, foreign tooling system, it oftentimes is really challenging. So testing Doing testing is the happy path. How do we get more people onto that path out of the gate than them having to, to at some point circle back around to it and wander right. around in the forest for a right. while? And, 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 and the other part of this, which, I, which I'm not going to tackle, but I, I do want to mention, is, is there's the second loop of um, having an app deployed and running. Yeah. So, you know, what, one of the things I want to do in order to set up my environment, if you like, to do good work, so I'm starting a new Java app or I'm starting a new Kotlin app or whatever it is, um, is I want to start with a, so I, I call it a dancing skeleton. So it's a walking skeleton, but it's not, I'm not thinking about the architecture necessarily of the app. I'm thinking about its path to live. So yeah. I have something that is in an environment that is representative of what it's going to look like that I can prod, that I can make do things. And once I have that loop, I then have a TDD loop of behavior within a push and build type loop of seeing what it's like when it's deployed. Mm -hmm. Once I have those two pieces in place, I'm pretty confident that I can make quite fast progress. You can iterate forward. Are you familiar with cookie cutter? What's cookie cutter? Um, it's uh, well, it, it's a Python. I, mean, I, know, project. I know the term, but I don't know the. Uh... It's a it's a Python project. You've got your door is opening. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there, but um, anyway, it's it's a Python. My, my wonderful project. son has just come home, and he likes to come in and say hi to daddy. Oh, nice. nice. Um, and we may have a visitor. Awesome. It's uh, what it does is it says, oh, 
you want to do this thing with this, you know, often maybe it's with a framework or some sort of library or whatever. Here is a cookie cutter starting point that you can lay down. And I mean, this thing will generate it for you and it'll get it working and then you can iterate on it. So it's pretty much the same kind of thing that you're talking uh, about. Now you see, <clears throat> without looking at it, I can't say my, my concern would be, my fear would be that the, the cookie that it cuts um, flies in the face of how I typically end up writing stuff. Right, so um, you can but, create your own. I mean, it's it's an open. Right, well, system. and this is the thing: is 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 um, mostly, and in my Cupid article, I talk about. And this is about domain based structuring your code in a domain based way. Mm-hmm. Is <clears throat> that um, most frameworks and cookie cutter tools and whatever they will say? Okay, so you're in a MVC type of setup. So here's your models and your views and your controllers and your helpers, and this is where they're all going to live. Mm-hmm. and that's not how I want the code to be. I, I know there will be models in using controllers and helpers. <laughs> it may well be that the models using controllers and helpers for my initial features or use cases or whatever sit in the same source file, right? They're not going to be very big. Um, I don't like the artificial seam of, of having to put these things in a place where, but essentially what I, when I look at the code, I don't want to see the framework. I want to see the domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that typically means that every cook is going to be different, mm-hmm. right? If it can give me an empty hello world thing with that path to live, right? I'm super excited about that. But that tends not to be what the, the, the cookie that it cuts. The cookie that it cuts is is the flat app, but with opinions about where all the stuff's going to live. Yeah, this I... is about. Th- the cutting of the cookie and not the cookie itself. So mm. you you say, here's what I want, and you make your own um, you make your own cookie, and you make it the way you want, and then you can point people to it and say, well, here's here's the way I can get started for this kind of a problem. So I'd, anyway, I really like this framing around the the feedback piece because I think this is something we don't think enough about in generally with developer experience things is that feedback I love that we started here because like feedback is so important to what we do as developers and the way that I see it I'm going to change metaphors but the way I see it is like an onion where we've got like this inner feedback loop which for me oftentimes is my IDE like giving me red squigglies and then I've got like the next layer of the onion which is like running the app or running my tests or doing both at the same time but like actually no actually no the next the next layer is like usually the compiler for me the compiler telling me that that my program compiles then the next loop is actually running my tests or running my program in some way so i've got this like like layers of an onion uh the next one would be like actually doing ci on this thing so that's giving me some other feedback and then the like outermost layer is my production system and at each of those i have different latencies in my feedback cycle and so I want to try to keep as much of my work in the lowest latency system, because if the only feedback that I'm getting is in production, that's a really high and challenging area to get good feedback from and, and take expensive. that feedback and yeah, expensive and 
all that. And so, so we're trying to like minimize the, like be at the center of the onion as much as we possibly can. Um, uh, so I'm going to say yes. And yes. And what, what we want to do is interweave these technical and social feedback loops. So as, so for sure, I can get feedback on whether I'm making progress in the direction I want. It's not until it's in front of someone that I know whether that's the direction I should be going. Right. Yep. So, you know, the the get, getting stuff out and getting feedback, even though the even though the 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 it has the appearance of higher latency, it's actually a a shorter fee, a shorter path to getting useful feedback about direction. Uh, yeah, and this is where like the waterfall versus agile whatever comes into play because you could spend years in a very tight feedback system loop, you know, building something that is technically wonderful. And then years later, you finally get it out there to your users. And they're like, yeah, that's not and at all. I would argue that the point of Agile, the, the problem that they were actually trying to solve was a feedback problem. Well, so this is great. So I, I've, said, I've said this a number of times. Um, I describe Agile as three things. Work in small chunks, get feedback, take engineering seriously. Huh. Right, that's it. And then, I, and then I, I, I um, bookend this by saying, if anyone tells you it's less than this, they don't understand agile. If anyone tells you it's more than this, they're selling you something. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I'd almost want to do a, a cold start and just say, okay, here's Dan's rules for <laughs> for programming life, rather for, than for trying to. I, mean, I, I feel like well, just, I don't really call it agile. I just call it effective delivery. So what yeah. I want is to be able to do things well, do things quickly, and learn quickly whether they're, whether they're useful things. I think attaching it to agile might be problematic at this point. I, yeah, I would say effective delivery, or or yeah, or something like that. <laughs> okay, that's. Uh, I like that you brought in, like that you brought together the two sides of those feedback systems, and that they have to work together. You could, like having just one of the the social or technical, like you're not going to get to where you want to go. You really need both systems. You need them to work well together. Well, right. and, and this is so Jeff Patton, who's just one of my favorite human beings. Um, he he very early on. He said he had a real disconnect with, for him it was XP, but just the, the Agile world in general. He said he, he didn't get it. He said, um, I'm, I'm a programmer and I know exactly what I want. And he said, and XP told me that I was either the customer, which is the subject matter expert, or I'm the programmers. And he said, and I was told to pick a side. And so I, I picked the, the customer side because we had enough programmers. He said, and it just seemed to me like a really false dichotomy. And, you know, Scrum, again, you've got the product owner and the team members. And what you actually want is people who are able to grok a domain, understand a domain deeply, understand the, the needs of people in that domain, and understand what, what, you're, what, what service you're trying to provide, what need you're trying to meet in jobs theory uh, language, what, what, what job it is to be done. What's the job that your product does? And then to be able to go ahead and make a product that does that job. Right? And, and it's, I don't understand, I've never understood why we think that it's, it's two different sets of people or types of people who would have both you know, the various sides of that conversation. Hmm. Well, one of the things I like 
I don't know if it was one or multiple of your presentations you talked about, you said the whole point of this is to um, produce business impact. Yes, yeah, sustainably minimize lead time to business impact. I've worked really hard on that phrase. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so it's also so. So the way I describe it is: this, lead time is the only game in town. Okay, so lead time is. I'm sure there are many technical definitions. Lead time for me is the the wall clock time, the elapsed time from James saying I need a thing to James saying thank you. Mm-hmm. Right, that's it. So I could be shipping loads of stuff. And if he hasn't said thank you yet, <laughs> I haven't got it right. It's only when he says thank you that I get to stop the clock. <laughs> and then, so we want to minimize that lead time. And then I tack on the word sustainably because it's pretty easy to minimize lead time to business impact once, right? And you do that just by burning everyone out, maybe twice, right? By that time, everyone's quit. So the sustainably piece create causes you to think about how do we do this in a way that the human beings involved in this enterprise um, can continue to do this? And that's where you get into ideas like joy, happiness, uh, collaboration, um, all of Dan Pink's you know, autonomy, mastery, purpose, that sense, of, that sense of being part of a bigger thing. And if you don't create those things, you get mediocre products and high attrition. I got to say, you know, I've been thinking about this, even though, God, you know, who knows what the possibilities are at this point. But I've started thinking, you know, there's a part of my life that's not fulfilled that would be by actually, you know, building things rather than just thinking about how everybody else builds things. And the only thing that comes to me is like, it's not about the money it's about the quality of the experience. It's about the, the exp- I, I had one consulting customer that ruined me for everybody else because they were so great to work with. And I came away with that going, how do I only have customers like that? <laughs> and, or, or whatever experience it is. And it's like, I'm, I'm, and, and so all of those other things that have quote unquote, nothing to do with programming, those are the things that are important to me. It's like the human interaction, the stimulation, the lack of somebody standing there with a whip saying, we got to get it out now. It's like, well, but do those things even exist and how do you find them? Well, I worked with a, a wonderful lady some years ago um, who was, <clears throat> she's, you know, one of these, superbly nebulous transformation type titles mm-hmm. and she'd chosen this superbly nebulous transformation title because it meant she could just run around cause all kinds of mischief and no one really knew what she did and she described her job as i want the people around me to have a better day today than they had yesterday mm. that's it mm-hmm. if the people around me are having a better day today than they had yesterday everything else will follow from that Mm-hmm. customers will be happier products will be better technology you know technical choices will be all of the things that we that we think matter come from again autonomy mastery purpose come from and i'm a massive massive fan of um amy edmondson professor amy edmondson psychological safety mm. the, the, the 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 sense that i can that asking questions isn't ignorance asking questions is um is learning Yes. Uh, challenging the status quo isn't isn't causing trouble. It's wanting to improve things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, asking for help, right? asking for help isn't incompetence. It's collaboration. And and that that shift of uh, um, 
you know, asking for help, uh, um, asking questions and, and challenging things is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and, and you know, so, side note, most people I see talking about or, or writing about uh, psychological safety, I don't think they've actually read what it is. <laughs> mm. They've just heard the words. And, um, you know, this idea, so, so psychological safety isn't about, uh, or it, it's about um, interpersonal intimacy, interpersonal vulnerability, mm-hmm. particularly interpersonal vulnerability in a professional context. Mm-hmm. You mean right? like, well, I mean, I still have this, I still have to tell myself, no, you need to ask the question. If you're in the middle of a con- conversation at a conference and people start using acronyms or they start assuming that everybody knows what's going on and I don't, there's always a little hesitation. I'm going, you know, because there's the voice that says, oh, but they'll know that you don't know what you're talking about. And I have to go, that's okay. This conversation is pointless if I if I continue to smile and nod, ask the question. And There's that's a wonderful XKCD about this. And it's this, this, this idea that you say, oh, I can't believe, you know, surely you know about this thing. And uh, Randall Schwartz, he says, he takes all his, um, <clears throat> the, um, uh, he does this wonderful Venn diagram of like, you know, amount of things that people learn in the day, amount of things that people learn in their life and the amount of things there are kind of thing. And he says, on average, most people are learning X new things each day. And, and so what, and, and I, I've trained myself to do this and it is a, it is a, 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 an active thing is that when you discover that someone doesn't know something that like everyone knows, then my response is, oh, cool. I get to be the person who tells you about, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, did, did, you know, surely everyone knows that this, you know, everyone knows about PyTest and anyone coding in Python knows about PyTest and you find someone who's been using Python for years and they've not come across PyTest and you're like, man, I'm going to make your day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me yes. show you this thing. Let me show you how fun this is. And you just watch their eyes light up and you go, I did that. So, all right, let's get into this kerfuffle that you've started about sorry. Cupid. <laughs> sorry. I mean, not you sorry. stepped in it. You might as well. <laughs> you've got to own it. I know. And again, it was... Um, you know, well, so a bit more, a bit more context, James. So when I met Bruce, I started writing a book called Software Faster in about 2011, 2012. So it's, it's a 10 year labor of love, still about less than a quarter full, a quarter complete. And, and one of the many conversations we had during that, that wonderful day we went together, um, was, would you be a editor reviewer on my book? And he said, I'd love to be an editor reviewer on your book. Start sending me stuff. How much stuff have I sent you, Bruce? I'm, you may have sent me something that I didn't attend to. I'm going to go with the Douglas Adams, none at all. Oh, well, that's a relief. (laughs) No, you're fine. You're off the hook You are are totally off the hook. No, I, 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 I have this aspiration to write this book. And I now have a brilliant co-author who is chasing me, and she's wonderful, uh, um, Helen Scott. So she's, um, um, but yeah. So so so. Meanwhile, someone someone um, pokes me with a stick and says, "What about this solid thing?" Then, and then suddenly I write this, you know, five thousand word Cupid article and do a series of talks about it, and, and it's completely uh, broadsided my, my software faster. But the fun thing is that now as we're writing new chapters, we're referencing Cupid. So 
it all it's all intertwingled. So I get to ask the dumb question of what is solid. Okay, so <clears throat> about a hundred years ago, or sometime in the medieval uh, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, chap called Robert Martin, um, who who, who also to himself as Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob. Um, he he's actually t- t- to be fair. So he he's the cause of agile. Agile is his fault, and the reason it's his fault is in the late nineties, early two thousands, a bunch of independent folks or a bunch of folks were independently going around doing you know, working in small chunks, t- uh, getting feedback, taking engineering seriously in different ways, and they all had uh, various um, competing or d- d- rival methodologies. There was. Peter Code's feature-driven design. There was um, Crystal. There was Scrum. There was Adaptive. There was uh, XP. Loads of these different things. And Bob Martin sort of went through his Rolodex and he said, "Right, let's get everyone in a room and and see if we can come up with like a branding term for this thing that we've got in common." And and that was the the Snowbird Conference, and that was where Which where the term I'm Agile came point from. Out, I was invited to, but I said. Well, who's going to pay for me to come? I'm not certainly not going to pay for myself. This was before I understood. Right. So right. I missed um, out. Well, I missed out. Well, and 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 um, being being a a um, a middle aged white guy, you'd have fit right in, mm-hmm. <laughs> because so were the all so were these seventeen participants, uh, which which says a lot for diversity of relatives. But you know, but so 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 something that he'd done sometime before was this. Um, he came up with a load of principles of, of good object-oriented code. And Mike Feathers, who was working with him at Object Mentor, he noticed that if you took the first five of these and changed the order slightly, you could create the acronym SOLID, okay. um, which, which was fun. And so they are, very briefly, single responsibility principle. So uh, the, 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 the canonical definition, I've done loads of reading on this, the canonical definition, code should have one reason to change, right? And so the, the examples are things like if you have a some kind of form, then the, the code that is the data for the form or the business rules for the form should be separate from the code that is the view for the form and how you present it, okay. for instance. Um, o is open-close principle, of which there are two rival versions. Um, but by and large, code should be open for extension and closed for modification. And what it really means is that the extension points of code should be really obvious. Right. Add your stuff here. Don't touch that bit. Okay. Uh, L is uh, Liskov substitutability principle. So the idea that you should be able to drop in subtypes in the place of supertypes and no one should notice terribly much, or at least there shouldn't be any unpleasant surprises. Um, I is, uh, now what's this one now? Uh, oh, interface segregation principle which is if you have a massive God object with hundreds of responsibilities, instead what you should have is a, it, it should implement a number of small opinionated interfaces and you should just talk to it through those interfaces. And D is then dependency inversion, which is, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. So these were the five. And where That's, this started... That was well was, done. Thank you very much. Come, yeah. I'd, <laughs> there's a lot of things that I know well and would not be able to come up with. a lot of time on this. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really, I've, I've, I've been way too close to this. Um, so so the, the, the crazy thing here was, um, and, and all of this starts as, you know, the, what, what I have now with Cupid is life imitating satire. Right? <laughs> this isn't even life imitating, it's life imitating satire. 
So I got invited to speak at a um, one of these Ignite style, you know, five minute talks, 20 slides, auto advancing, 15 seconds. And um, what and as the, the, the only rules were, so it takes place in a pub. The only rules are it has to be about computing and it has to be funny. Right. So I was like, okay, great. And I've been, I can't remember why Solid was front of mind, but it just popped into my head. And I thought, this, this man, this talk writes itself, right? <laughs> one slide about what the thing is, one slide about why I disagree with it, one slide about what I do instead, five times. That's 15 slides. Top and tail it, you're done. Nice. I said, I'm going to talk about why every single element of Solid is wrong. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so they said, okay, that sounds fun. And, and so I started writing this talk, and then a weird thing happened is I thought I'd come up with some kind of counter for each thing. And it's actually pretty easy to drive a truck through each of these things. It turns out. And then, what, oh, man, I'll tell you what, though, after this went out, the, 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 the software craftsmen, they came for me with pitchforks. They were like, oh, oh yeah, effigies, you name it. Yeah, um, don't don't talk bad about our our beloved solid. No, right? I, I, there is a blog post out there called "Why Every Single Element of Dan North Is Wrong." I oh mean, this is ad hominem <laughs> to the max. This guy was really pissed. Huh. Um, anyway, and and he wonderfully misrepresents all of it. But I, I went anyway. I don't want to name it. Um, it's out there if you care. So. Um, what I found is this: each time I, if my counter for each of the five things was to just write simple code. Huh. And obviously, I need to be able to stand behind that. What do you mean by simple code? Everyone's idea of simple is different. Um, uh, simple code is code that will fit in someone's head, and the someone isn't me or you. The someone is anyone who understands pretty much kind of idiomatic the code in play. Well, I think you used the word inhabitable, which I liked. Well, so well, that, that comes along later on. Ha habitable is, um, uh, is uh, what's his name? Um, which one happens when you're recording live? Uh, Christopher uh, Alexander? No, no. Uh, right. I need, this is, is the I one of the Cupid things? So we're, so your new, your, your better Gabriel. solid is, is is Cupid. Is Cupid, yes. Yes, right. So okay. exactly, you're getting a little ahead. Okay. Um, so, so Dick Gabriel, Richard Gabriel in uh, 19, uh, in, in uh, 96 or something, mid-90s, he writes this wonderful, wonderful series of articles called Patterns of Software. And one of them is called Habitability and Piecemeal Growth. And it's just beautiful. So if you go to, um, so the other thing I'm building at the moment, and another one of my side projects is I've taken this Cupid article and bust it out into the five component pieces and put it on a website called cupid.dev. So cupid.dev nice. is, hopefully it's going to be a little bit more um, styled than it is now. Right now it's just the, it's just the text. It's got no pictures or anything. Uh, it just makes it a bit easier to navigate the, 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 the content. Um, but habitability comes later. No, what, what, so, so, so fits in my head is as, as long as you understand, so say it's a Kotlin code base. If you understand idiomatic Kotlin, uh, simple means you can look at this and you can get it. It's really no more, you know, um, sophisticated than that. If you look at it and you're scratching your head because it's, it's clever, mm -hmm. you know, air quotes, clever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, someone's written a done this in a clever way using language, you know, monkey patching in an OO language when you could just use object composition. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just self-harm. Um, so, so I said, so, um, for instance, uh, single responsibility. I'm like, well, no, just write simple code. 
right? If, if, if at the stage you are with the code you've got, it makes sense to have the content of the form, the source of the form, the business rules of the form, and the display of the form in one place as one thing, then then you should just have that. Hmm. Um, dogs coming in and out of rooms. Oh. <clears throat> um, then you know, and and so saying that you should keep these things separate um, is an is a well, it's a premature optimization of code structure. That's really what it is. It's yeah, it's a seam. It's an option. Let's let's let the code base get a bit messy and then see where it wants to break. Hmm. It may want to break along domain boundaries and keep all of the form stuff together and have all of the authentication stuff in a different place. Yeah. It may be that I do want to put all my controllers together for some reason about controllers or about deployability or something. Um, but I'll figure that out. I don't want to decide that a priori. This reminds me of, uh, so there's the microservice design patterns um, from, uh, uh, oh my God, having those brain freezes today. But anyways, Mm -hmm. so one of them says, it says that microservice is a design pattern and mono monolithic architecture is also a design pattern but people really want to know like should i use just microservices or should i just use monolithic like people ask that question all the time uh and and what is the answer is it depends and i think that like we just don't like for the answer to be it depends because it's too too ambiguous it's uncomfortable concurrency is shot full of all of that stuff. It's like, well, how do I write a concurrent program? Yeah. Well, it depends yeah. on what problem you're it, trying to solve. Exactly. It depends. And so I think like you're saying is like, like really it should depend on a lot of factors where, how you decide to break your code up, but we want to be able to say, Nope, always do model view controller, whatever it is, just cause mm-hmm. that's the simple, the simple thing, but often doesn't make sense. And so I, I find just, that I, really confusing. Uh, Chris Richardson is the person. Sorry. Oh, who said that? But Chris Richardson. Yeah, that kind of thing is is really confusing. It's like when model view controller was introduced, I was going, why why would I do it that? Well, this is because solid, Bruce. Because solid. Yeah. Oh, now hang on. Let let me let me leap to the defense of NBC because again, this is something I was looking up recently. It turns out that we're all doing that wrong. Right? Of course, it was so many things. People you should be doing VVM or whatever it is, well, and no, then, no, not even and then that. React just like blew up the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, so, so, so the original MVC, the idea of having a domain model and some projection of that domain model and something that arbitrates between those things, that's a micro design pattern. Yeah. The idea is that every single one of your page fragments or view fragments should have model view controller. You know, it should represent some domain construct and the domain construct in a model. And then you've got the view that's rep- the, the rendering of that. And so then your page is made up of lots and lots of these M's and V's and C's going around in little gangs. Yeah. And we end up with, you know, the, pay- the, the page view. The page being the single the page, MVC, so we have this yeah. macro view page. thing. Instead and of domain centric, you make it page centric. <laughs> right, right. And so now suddenly, you know, you have the controller for this page. And, and that was never the intent. Huh. So I think model view presenter is probably the closest thing. But even then, when you have lots of tiny components. But, um, so someone asked me uh, in the last few days, actually, they said, they said to me, 
they 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 emailed me and they said this is how you know i i write software and and what do you think and and basically what they said is you know i i look at the i look at the requirements or look at the you know the the um, the problem statement and i take out all the nouns and i start with all the nouns and i make entities out of all the nouns i'm like okay and then so then what i do is i look for the verbs and they become methods on the and I just read this thing through and I was like, okay, this is probably how I was taught how this stuff as well, you know, 30 odd years ago. Um, no, I said, no, this is not what I do. <laughs> so I, 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 so I, I then, I then spent a, but I, I, I should probably blog this. <clears throat> um, but so, so I'll just read a couple of fragments from my reply to him. I said, I start with the problem statement like you, and I describe the high level use cases or user journeys, and I decide which ones I'm going to start with. Huh. Right. Nothing else matters. That's yeah. the entire world now. And then, and this goes back to the, the, the dancing skeleton, I try to get something, anything, end-to-end working and deployed. This can be a simple hello world uh, in an environment where I can exercise the code, right? Uh, so this causes me to set up my basic tooling and build. And then I say, I model the, the flow for just the initial use case I'm looking at, um, but I always start with behavior rather than entities. Hmm. And it may be that I can get the behavior I want in one monolithic block of code, and that's fine, right, to start with. Huh. And and then and this goes back to your it depends because I I you know, I I I don't want to be the it depends guy or girl right I don't <laughs> want to be the person who's like, it depends and it's like I saw this at an agile conference once and I, oh man a very famous agile person uh, luminary type person and someone you know just like dewy eyed never heard of agile before they've been sent there by their manager and they wound up and they said um, so so what is agile then. Well, I mean, what, what is it? I've been to all these talks. I still can't get my head around. What is Agile? And they said, it's it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> well. And I was like, I mean, kind of, yeah, and kind of I want to punch you in the face. Yeah, those things, both of those you know, things. Yep. You know, it, yep. and you just want to shake and say, look, just give this person something. Take, like work in small chunks, get feedback, take engineering seriously, whatever it is, right? Just, here's something to go away and start with. So, so, so if, if if I say it depends, I, I always you know this again. This is like note to self uh, to to at least say on what. Right? Yes, right. Yeah, yes. there you go. And so, yeah. so then I say um, give some framing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so what I said to this to this this chap in reply, I said I try to let the use cases guide the architecture. If it feels like a message or event based architecture, I tend towards small message based components. Um, but they might all be in a single monolith. I might be using some like, you know, uh, go routines or something like that. It doesn't have to be separate pieces. Um, if it feels more synchronous, like a user does a thing that causes a linear sequence of events that can end up back at the user or a payload hits an endpoint and some synchronous processing takes place, I might just go down that controller service repository type thing. Yeah. Right? But the yeah. use case tells me the shape it wants to be. Hmm. Yeah, it's... It's making me think, oh, I think this is another example of where we're saying, well, I need to know what the pieces are before I can write the program. Yes. And it's actually, no, you have to try and write the program, and then that reveals what the pieces are, and maybe it's... Well, and in fact, it's more than that. I would say that they co-create. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 as the pieces emerge, they inform what it is you're building, and this is why, back to, yeah. to our, our, the, the earlier conversation with James, this is why we need to get the, the social feedback loop in with the technical feedback loop. Huh. Because, and, and I, I've, I've started framing this in terms of product 
management and particularly in terms of jobs to be done. So I don't know if you come across jobs to be done, Clay Christensen. And so he, he uses, it it all starts in my mind, at least this isn't in my mind. It all starts with the, that lovely phrase, people don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. Right. So it's what, what's the outcome that I want? So, so, um, Ted, I'm a drill guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not, I might want a quarter inch hole, but I also want to collect some pretty cool power tools. (laughs) (laughs) If I can excuse to get a new power tool because you want a quarter inch hole, I'll get the power tool. Um, no, and so, so I said, people don't want a product. They want what the product does for them. Hmm. And they call yeah. this the job to be done. So in their language, you hire a product. And you hire the product to do the job. And if you can find a product that does the job better or you know, fits your model better, you're, you're going to use that other product. And the way that, that the Clay Christensen, there's, again, there's lots of different churches of this, but the way the Clay Christensen world looks at this is you have what they call your current state and your desired state, your goal state. And the goal state might be a social thing. You know, I want to have more status. The goal state might be a financial thing. They might want financial stability. It might be a capability. I want to be able to do a thing that I couldn't do or have an experience that I haven't had. And, the idea, and, then, and then you define a product as something that helps you make progress from where you are to where you want to be. <laughs> now, hold that thought. Because if we're now talking about building a product that gets me from where I am to where I want to be, as I set out on that journey, because you're offering me a product that helps me, my goal might change, right? I start at A, I want to go to B, right? I want to go to B. And on my way, I suddenly realized that actually I'd be much happier at C. Now, one of two things happens. You can double down with your product and be amazing at getting me to B, and it's now still the wrong product. And then you get really frustrated and cross with me and the users are wrong and everything's, you know, because when clearly we're making this product better and better and we're losing all our customers, right? Because the goal changed and we didn't notice. Or because I have that social feedback, I understand that the, the customer product feedback, I understand that the goal has changed and I adapt my product now to help you make progress from where you are, which is like some A prime or whatever, towards C. So you end up with like this set of kind of micro corrections all the way through. And that, if we're not building products with that mindset, we are doomed to build the wrong thing with the best of intentions. So, but I've visualized that product and I have become attached to, (laughs) well, and, and this actually segues into your book. Because, you know, we, we could throw a monkey wrench in and we're going, well, are you really creating a book or is a book just some artifact that you've become attached to? And maybe you're creating, maybe what you really need to create is something else. And I'm much better at pointing this out for other people than realizing it for myself. Right. And, and, and you, you, yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person who's, who's, who's asked this question. So... I think for me, um, software faster is a, and I don't, I, I'm always wary about using fancy words with my own stuff, but it feels like a canon. It feels like a bunch of, you know, a, a body of work. And in actual, in actual fact, it feels like several bodies of work, related bodies of work. So what I did really early on, okay, back, back up. Um, 2011, I, 2010, 2011, I was working with a very unusual team by far the most high-performing software team I've ever encountered. Uh, there are many stories I could tell you about this team. 
the 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 best way to describe it though is having spent best part of a decade in you know agile land and to some extent you know shaping agile land when i joined this team who were head and shoulders more not just faster output better quality output better suited to their customers it was trading software inside a trading firm directly with traders and the feedback loop like you know put it like this the the, the, the business case was easy did it make money right huh. Can we change it so it makes more money, right? Or did it lose not as much money as the other thing lost money? Um, uh, but then, you know, the, the ramifications of that, it has to be incredibly easy to use because the one thing you don't want as a trader is to be looking at stale information on a screen or to be having to think about the tool rather than about trading, right? So suddenly UX is a big deal. The rate of change is a big deal. You might see a trading opportunity that is going to last for a number of hours. Right? If you don't jump on that, then it doesn't matter. If we ship it next week, it's too late. Right? Yeah. And so anyway, the thing I had after a few months in this team was culture shock. I was, I was, gen, I was genuinely, I went into a depression. I, you know, I went in a real kind of crisis of, I don't even know how to write software. I don't know what I'm doing here. And part of it was that my superpowers by this point, you know, when I left ThoughtWorks, were about like um, tackling complex uh, organization management and trying to push open doors. And 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 this this trading firm had the most ridiculously enlightened managers. You know, say we need to do this thing, and they'd say, "Well, you should go ahead and do that thing." Then you're like, "What? <laughs> Wait, I'm just I'm totally prepared for this conversation." Yeah, I know, but you should just go and do that thing. Are you a grown up? Yes, get into it. I don't have any objections to you doing right. that thing. Yeah. No, not even I don't have any objections. How can I help you? If you think that's the thing you do, how do we help you? I'm like, man, this isn't so... None of my superpowers worked. <laughs> they were all like redundant. And so so being part of this team, and, and I'm sure, Bruce, you'll recognize this. When you're, when you're in a situation, you're, you're being in the situation. You're being Bruce. You know, sitting there, you know, cutting code or pairing with people or coaching or whatever it is you're doing. You're also observing you in that situation. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, is there, you know, what of this is situational here? And what of this could I maybe share, articulate, mm-hmm. communicate? What am I learning here that maybe I could generalize? And, and so I started doing that. And that was basically my coping mechanism was like, is this just a one-off and you just have to hire this team? Or are these folks doing something, but it is so not what the Agile folks are doing? It's so counter to that, but it is still its own, you know, I can still articulate these things. Would you say that the problems that Agile are is designed to solve were already solved in that situation? Well, so this is, and, and well, I think there's a, there's a tacit assumption there that I want to tease out. What are the problems that, that Agile is designed to solve? And this, again, is one of the reasons why, and I've said this many times, you can't scale Agile. You can create agility at scale, but you can't scale Agile. They're different things. And Agile methods, all of the Agile methods, practically, I mean, there's one or two exceptions, um, all of the Agile methods were designed for to help team scale delivery suck less. So in, it's defined as a negative well, it's, it's defined as it's trying to get work done, right? Mm-hmm. If you have an on-site customer or you have an embedded product owner or whatever, it is, if you have domain knowledge, subject matter expertise in the team, you can shorten feedback loops. If you work in stories or features or whatever they might be, little 
module little chunks of work rather than huge um line items on a gantt chart then it means you can get feedback sooner and you can course correct so so it was it was for this kind of world and you know at that time and again we've got to put this in a historical context in the kind of mid 90s the the very fact of getting eight or ten people pointing in the same direction given that those eight or ten people often were in different departments maybe different time zones right cross-functional teams were completely heretical for the longest time you know anyone who's been in software for less than 25 years has never experienced that (laughs) you know um for the longest time uh people you know the you would have, you know, the wonderful, the, and, and you and you look at like some of these 70s um, software models, like Barry Bohm's, the spiral model, and you look at the spiral and it basically it's, you know, it's, it's, it's analyzed, design, develop, build, right? Uh, deploy. And, and that makes perfect sense until you look at the, 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 the legend on that diagram and it says this is an 18 month cycle, <laughs> right? Interesting. And then like the V model that says start with, at the point when you're doing your requirements, write your acceptance tests. Hey, that's a really good idea. When you get into your detailed design, write your unit tests. Man, you guys are rocking this. And then again, now you get into code, right? And, and then you look at that V model and it says two years. Wow. <laughs> okay. So then if you if you look at agility as shortening that feedback time, you say, well, instead of 18 months, I want it to be 18 minutes, right? And instead of two weeks, I want it to be two, uh, two years. I want it to be two weeks or maybe even two hours. Yeah. Um, then they were right. Yeah. <laughs> but the 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 constraints, the physical, technological constraints in which they were operating, eighteen months was considered pretty crazy. Right. You know, if you're a if you're at Boeing or wherever Barry Boeing was, you know, these massive engineering firms, eight an eighteen month cycle, you're challenging a status quo that talks in decade cycles. Yep. And this crazy this crazy upstart was talking eighteen months. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Roy's talking so, about two years was was just revolutionary, and then when you get someone like um, Martine Devos, who's you know, one of the very early Scrum pioneers, and she's saying right instead of delivering an eighteen month feature, we're going to ship something in twelve weeks, or I'm going to kill people, <laughs> and and then she says, um, and we're not just going to fly blind for twelve weeks like we usually do. We're going to sh- we're going to showcase something in six weeks. We're going to course correct. And so that, that's all she said. She said, Let's, we're going to do this. We're going to have a showcase after six weeks. We're going to um, release in 12 weeks. doesn't matter what it is, but it's going to be non-zero. And huh. everything else, everything else in Scrum follows from that one constraint. Right? If you have monthly steering and you have six weeks, you're going to land one or maybe two steering meetings. And that's, that's not going to help. Right? In 18 months, I've had 18. What if I did it every week? Well, it's still only six. <laughs> what if I did daily steering, daily micro steering? Okay, let's do that. Right, I just invented the stand-up. No one told <laughs> sure. me, but I just, right, if 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 this feature goes from desk to desk to desk through the organization for eight months, <clears throat> Martin's going to kill us after six weeks. What do we need to do? We need to go and get you know Bruce the tester. We need to go and get James the the, the systems analyst. We need to go and get you know Dan the programmer. And we need to put these people at the same desk, man. If we don't put them at the same desk, we cannot possibly ship something in six weeks. I just invented co-located. No one told me to co-locate teams. They just said Martine's going to be really cross in six weeks if you don't show her something. 
Yeah. And so if you look at all of the stuff that became, you know, ritual or canon or baked in stone or whatever with Scrum, it was simply, can we ship something noticeable in six weeks? And everything else follows from that. <laughs> and then the historical projection bit, and this again comes back to solid being stuck in time. Scrum is equally stuck in time. Um, a two-week planning case. Well, the original sprints were six weeks, but like that goes down to four weeks to three weeks. Nowadays, mostly it's two or three weeks. Having a two or three week planning horizon makes sense when you're going to do a 12 week release, right? Having a two or three week planning horizon when I can ship 15 different builds in a morning onto servers that I don't even own, <coughs> who on earth is going to wait for two weeks for feedback? That's crazy. Yeah. Our competitors have done five releases in that time and taken our market share. Yeah. Right. So now I talk about like the only, the only reasonable planning horizons are quarterly because that gives us like things to aim for and now <laughs> there is no reasonable planning horizon between in the moment and quarterly that makes any sense at all um so let me ask you a final question because we're reaching reaching our end um oh man i'm just getting is, i'm just getting started now i know, I know, I know. Up here. we could definitely go on for <laughs> and i i'm gonna just have to send you my list of um, meta problems um, uh, but, well, i'd be more than happy to do this again this is too much fun well that's true we, we could we could do that but i still want to send you that list um please send me your meta list yeah I'm very happy so what Okay, and and I'll in the process of preparing for this, um, many things came up for me. And when I thought of this question, I thought, well, what's mine? And I realized that I had defined my professional goal in the terms of a negative, which was that I didn't want to be boxed in by anything. And I made all my decisions based on that, but it was much harder to do that. It was much harder to say, oh, well, does this box me in or not? And it's like, it doesn't tell me what I want. It tells me what I don't want. So what is your general professional goal? And please, please frame it in terms of a negative. Yeah. <laughs> if you well, can. So, so, so I, I, can, I can give you a positive framing for your negative. There's wonderful language um, from actually from the world of NLP. Um, that they call uh, away from and towards motivation. Mm-hmm. So, so you can have away from motivation. I don't want to be boxed in. Right. And then towards motivation might be, I want to be known for, you know, significant contributions in a number of different areas. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and both of those are completely, and what tends to happen is when someone's in a, a, an unpleasant situation, most of their motivation is going to be away from. Sure. You know, when you ask them, what do you want? Oh, I don't want a crappy boss. I don't want to work long hours. I don't want to be whatever it is. Right. And then, but once they've got a bit of headspace, you say, what do you want? Wow. Do you know, actually, now I've had a good night's sleep, there are so many things that I could frame in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And so now we talk about the away from motivation and the towards motivation, and, and then we can start to build a, a, a profile. What, what I've found is... Uh, and I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a really rubbish answer because I don't have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. I've um, I, I did a I did a, a joint talk with a wonderful lady called Tricia G some years ago. Uh, she's she's awesome. a brilliant, brilliant Java programmer. Yeah. Been a developer advocate at, at JetBrains for a hundred years. Um, 
you know, has written some proper low latency, you know, electronic exchange type software. She's 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 got props. She's got um she's got props. Uh, anyway, we got chatting about careers, and we discovered that we had these like diametrically opposed. <laughs> so she's kind of I want to be here in three years. Therefore, I need these skills or this experience. Therefore, my next move will be that. Therefore, that's and she was like absolutely clinical about where huh. she was going. And I was, I was kind of, that looks interesting. I'm going to go over there. Or, you know, this thing lands in my lap and I'm basically lazy. So, so I'll go do that next. And so I've, I've mostly been, uh, I mean, I've been super lucky since I went independent, which was about 10 years now. Uh, all my work's been inbound. So people contact me and they say, can you help? You know, I've seen your talk about this or I, someone recommended you to do that. Um. And so I would describe the last decade or so as just a series of adventures. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's none of them I would have planned, mm-hmm. you no. know, um, from uh, coaching little consultancies to uh, being emailed by, uh, you know, ultra wealthy individuals who, who run entire business empires and saying, why don't you come and have a chat? And, and it's <laughs> like, so these okay. opportunities for adventure emerge uh, in front of you and then absolutely you, like, and, and let's what, what chase that. Sorry, yeah well let's chase that or let's explore that and 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 the thing i um i think certainly not necessarily the thing i go towards but my my um my heuristic if you like my my yardstick my 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 moral compass if you or something whatever we're going to call it um i want to be doing things that interest me i want to be doing things that are you know um net positive in the world um i want to be working with lovely people right back to your comment right at the beginning bruce you know Mm -hmm. we had this wonderful client once you've had a wonderful client once you've worked with wonderful people why would you not do that why would you not choose to do that and so i will certainly i will I, i have fired clients you know sometimes very explicitly sometimes very subtly where I just was not having fun, where there's just, you know, either uh, the direction you're taking, I don't agree with, or the people you've got, I'm just really, we're just not, this isn't working. Um, Likewise, and again, this is accidental, but now it's becoming more deliberate on that journey. I've met some wonderful people and some of those wonderful people I've made, you know, I've gone to lengths to keep close. So there's one brilliant lady I'm working with now, Anna Urbaniak. I've done a couple of talks with her now, and she is just phenomenal. Like massive brain, totally understands delivery, totally understands kind of flow and how to get software teams of like, you know, 12 or 120 or 300 or, you know, bunches of people at various different sizes pointing in the same direction and on the same page. And it's just phenomenal to watch her execute it. <laughs> and why would I not want to work with Anna? Mm-hmm. And when I get another opportunity, and if she's available, why would I not say, hey, Anna, I've got this opportunity. Why don't you come and hang out with me? <laughs> and I'm super lucky so far. She's mostly said yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so I think working with working with people, client working with wonderful <laughs> client people is great. I, I thought when I first set up as an independent, I called myself Dan North and Associates, assuming that I would build this kind of network of whatever. 
and maybe build a practice. And I know some a lot of folks end up with a practice of maybe 10, 15, 20 people who are like so there's around that the gang. public commitment thing again. <laughs> right? and, and it just hadn't it didn't never happened. And then suddenly mm. in the last, I guess, three years, I've now ended up with a small group of people who we kind of are really gelling. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I think of it like a band, right? I, I suspect that this band is going to record other albums. Nice. Yeah, we are going to go play elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's mostly it's about you know that that the that lovely phrase about opportunity. The harder I work, the luckier I get, or the more I practice, the luckier I get. Mm-hmm. Is I just keep practicing, uh, and I see where it takes me. And I had no idea Cupid was going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> Phil Nash, lovely Phil Nash, says to me, "Well, what would you do instead of?" Solid then. That's a very good question. You know, um, JB Rainsberger says, uh, so, you know, it really sucks that when I get a new technology, I have to learn how to do TDD. And I was like, you're right. You could fix that. <laughs> you know, yep. none of, I, I don't plan any of these things. <laughs> I just sort of end up. And mm-hmm. Dirk Gen- um, Douglas Adams in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency has this wonderful, he describes what he calls holistic driving. Um, Dirk Gently is a, a holistic detective, which is that he solves crimes based on the interconnectedness of all things. Um, it's a wonderful series of books. Uh, but he describes holistic driving, and holistic driving is this. He jumps in the car and sets off in a direction and follows someone until he sees someone who he thinks he should follow more, and he follows them. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I never end up where I thought I was going, and I always end up where I needed to be. <laughs> it's it's. What's really fascinating is that I've had this list of questions that I've wanted to ask you, and you have answered them before I've asked them in the flow of the uh, of the whole thing. And in fact, one of the questions was what I questions or things I posited was was called the goal problem, and I see it in many different ways is we decide the goal and we go, and I do this a lot, I get stuck on it. And um, I have a friend who teaches writing and and I've made several attempts to write novels. And I at one point I decided, well, you have to know where you're going to go. You know, if you're gonna write a novel, you have to know where you're gonna to get to. Sounds good, right? You know, it sounds reasonable. And, and writers will tell, some writers will tell you this. But then um, his system is that, no, you don't know where you're gonna go. In fact, if you do, that's gonna lock you up. That's huh. gonna keep you from writing. You have to just start driving. Yeah. Right, and 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 there and there are very different schools of this. So so the you know, the, the most famous of the or for me the most famous of these is Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. where where he started writing. Um, is it Nicholas Nickleby? One one of his books. He started writing as a series. He just write, serialized it, mm-hmm. and he'd write a chapter at a time. Because he was um, getting paid by the magazine. He was getting that. paid by the magazine, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, that's how I started issue. writing a book. Yeah. And and, and oh, yeah, you, you did it. And, and then Stephen King famously kind of picked this up and, and wrote. I, I can't remember which one it was, but um, one, one of his stories um, as as it just published a chapter of, uh, at a time. And and when you first start, you've got no idea where it's going. And then you you realise that once you've got a bunch of copy out there, you need to start thinking about keeping it at least consistent and character arcs and all that kind of stuff. Um, conversely i uh, a good friend of mine is an author <clears throat> has written a, a wonderful sci-fi book and you know and he spent a lot of time with plot arcs character arcs backstories huge amounts of research tons and tons of material 
before writing a single word of prose. Huh. You know, now I hear people saying, oh, you know, write, write, write it, rewrite it, rewrite it, sketch, sketch, sketch. When I write, when I wrote the Cupid article, when I write articles in general, I, I find that I agonize over each paragraph. Mm-hmm. And by the time I've, I've finished writing, it's about 90% of the way there. It's mm-hmm. not very efficient. Huh. <laughs> I'm sure there are fast ways to write. But what I find is it's, it's <clears throat> I really, really struggle with or noodle on exactly what it is I'm trying to say. I want to, I want to say it correctly. I want to say the thing right. And I want to say the right thing. And and then it'll go through a review cycle and it'll get much, much tighter. And especially working with a co-author, as I say, is wonderful because she's she's brutal. <laughs> and, and and so the, the chapter we end up with is best is much better than the chapter I wrote. But the content of it is practically there in the first draft. And I know a lot of people don't write like that and, and would actively discourage that. So, oh, yeah. so that, you know, the, 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 the goal fixation thing, I think really is an interesting phenomenon because it's, it's not right or wrong. It's simply useful for some people. Well, and one of the things, I don't know if you have a computer programming is like building a house or being a plumber or, you know, any of those things. And I've struggled with that one. And I, the only thing that I've come up with is it's actually writing code is like writing. It's like being a writer, hmm. which means that you have all of these different styles mm-hmm. and struggles and everything that are personal to everybody, and it doesn't. So, so yeah. So the metaphor I was using a while back, I, I did a, a talk or a series of talks called "Beyond Features," was I was likening software to surgery, and the reason I use the metaphor of surgery is this: no one wants surgery. <laughs> <laughs> right? yep. What they want is to be well. what they want is the results of that surgery and ideally what they want is the results of that surgery with the minimum possible surgery (laughs) and if you approach software in that way no one wants your fancy patterns and craftsmanship and blah what they want is the absolutely smallest amount of software to get the job done and if if you can do that with zero software you win at software Yep. And, and now it doesn't mean that you write bad software, right? I still want world-class surgery. I still want a surgeon who has practiced and practiced and practiced and who knows the best techniques and who knows what's appropriate and who won't be surprised when they cut me open. They're not going to go, oh, that's odd. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> what do you think of this? <laughs> Make a good case study. Right? I don't want that. I don't want someone who goes, ah, ah, I don't know. What... Right? Or, or, or what's that squishy thing? I've not seen one of those. Uh, or he says, I'm going to put this device in you because it's the device I know. Right? I'm going to use this framework because I'm going to make your surgery this shape problem. But I don't want any of that. I want someone who's seen enough surgery, practiced enough surgery, that when they look at me, they say, I can see the shortest path from where we are right now to you are well and going home. Huh. That is an excellent point on which we should finish. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, let's stay in better pleasure. touch. Please stay well. Very much that, was, that. that was super fun. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, folks.